Welcome to the Speaks Exchange podcast with your host, Donald Taylor. As a renowned learning and development industry expert, as well as chairman of the Learning and Performance Institute, Donald sits down with experts from around the globe to talk business communication, learning technology, language, digital transformation, and engaging, upskilling, and reskilling your organization. This podcast is brought to you by Speaks, the first intelligent language learning platform for the digital workplace. Listen in and you might learn a thing or two. Hi, this is Donald Taylor, Chairman of the Learning and Performance Institute, and welcome to this Speaks podcast with Laura Overton. Laura Overton, of course, famously the founder and the moving force behind Towards Maturity in the UK and internationally. I won't introduce Laura because I think that's something that she would best do herself. Laura, can you step up and tell us your background? Who are you? Oh, that's great. Um, I have been working in the field for uh, quite a considerable number of decades, Don. We've known each other um, a while. And I think really uh, the thing that's kind of characterized my work in this area is the desire to explore and to investigate and to uncover what works and what doesn't. Certainly in the last 30 years of working in learning and development, there has been so much incredible, exciting change that's been happening. And really, my whole work um, in the first 15 years of my career, the last 15 in driving forward the Towards Maturity research is about covering what works and what doesn't, particularly when it comes down to learning innovation. Um, Recently, I stepped down from the Towards Maturity team, um, but I can't step down from being that intrepid explorer, um, continually curious about um, what's going on in the world and really trying to look at it from an analytic perspective. So that's really what I'm doing at the moment. Okay, that's fantastic. Thank you so much. I, I've got my next question lined up in front of me, of course, but when you're talking about your curiosity into what works and what doesn't work, I have to ask you, well, what's the answer? What does work? What have you found? Um, unfortunately, what I found isn't sexy and isn't right there on the leading edge. It's actually common sense, Don. It's, it's where common sense overrides uh, the desire to follow the latest thing, that kind of magpie um, technology gathering desire that we have in our industry but it's actually the stuff that's common sense getting close to what's needed in the business questioning um, ourselves questioning other people what do we really need to be able to achieve and it's those practical things that about using the right tool at the right place at the right time to do the right thing consistently is what delivers the kind of results that are interesting for business I, I, I totally buy it. what you're saying is that we need to know where we're trying to get to focus on the goal, not the technology, and relentlessly focus on that rather than being distracted on the way. And of course, that doesn't mean we just do the technology. The people are an essential part of of the whole process. Is that a fair summary? Absolutely. So that brings me then to the question I've got on my clipboard in front of me. Evidence-based learning. Your, Your career has been about evidence and towards maturity. It was all about collecting a huge data set of evidence. Well, let's talk about evidence-based learning that enables us to answer this question, what works and what doesn't. What is it? And also, what isn't it? So let's start with the what is. What is evidence-based learning? Where I've um, kind of taken this on board is it's about how making decisions in 
corporate learning and development, because that's my background, um, that are based not just on gut instinct or what everyone else is doing at the time or what we feel we ought to be doing, or maybe even what we're being asked to do from the business leaders that we're supporting. But evidence-based learning decisions are all about, you know, how do we harness the right level, the most appropriate level of evidence, of data around us to help us make those decisions. Um, so I think for me, it's just about smart decision making and harnessing as much as we possibly can to deliver a timely decision because we can't, we're going to analysis paralysis if we try and get everything all on the table all at the same time. So for me, that's the power of evidence-based learning decisions is about just looking at what's out there, questioning our assumptions and making sure we make the right decision. Is there a risk that learning and development people, something I've observed, are going to be too inclined to try to gather in all the evidence, to be as comprehensive as possible, to learn and to know everything about something before they make a decision? Is that a risk? It's absolutely a risk. and I think it literally leads to analysis paralysis. And sometimes we are surrounded by this ocean of data. And we're surrounded by all kinds of beacons of light in that ocean. You know, so people are talking about AI and machine learning and others are talking about business impact and others are talking about the learner experience and how many milliseconds we spend on this video versus that blog. All of this is incredibly valuable. But if we try and get a hands around all of it we would just that we won't get there we have to really start honing in i believe on the things that make sense for the outcomes that we are looking to achieve at that point in time um, so i think this kind of analysis paralysis is something that is really um is, is a real danger uh, mm. zone for us um, at the moment and what i've observed and i've observed over the last few decades is that if we don't believe we can get our hands on the data we tend to stop doing something and i certainly saw that when it came down to things like return on investment and impact data which has been as you and i know we've been we're talking about business impact and can we prove it for decades um, and I think a lot of people say oh I just can't eat I don't even want to talk about it I can't get my hands on the data that categorically proves one way or another that's not what evidence-based learning decisions are all about. Laura in that answer you mentioned AI we know AI is incredibly powerful we see it in our lives every day as consumers with electronics my global sentiment survey that I, I do every year has seen ai rise up the ranks from fifth to third to second in terms of ranking of people thinking it's important in learning over the past three years and this year it was 2000 people so the 2000 people chose ai as the second most important thing after personalization which arguably is the result of the good use of AI. So we know it's going to be important. What's your view on that? What's your thinking about it? And is there an evidence-based approach to it? Or are you concerned that it's all rather speculative? Well, I think that what we're seeing with AI is in 
on one hand, it's another phase of something new and something fresh and something that should and could and must bring something new to learning and development. And I'm seeing some really interesting examples of that, actually. Um, you know, there are some, some great examples. I mean, when, when we meet together in December at the exchange program, um, we'll be looking at kind of the way that we connect and communicate. And there's a great example across Europe about the way that uh, um, different rail companies are using AI-driven language training to build communication skills where the learning and the training itself is being adapted to their context, to their individual requirements, and also to the context of the industry. And as an individual is learning new communication skills essential for compliance across the rail industry across uh, Europe, that learning is being adapted and uh, they're reflections are being changed as a result of machine learning behind the process. Now that works because there's so much data in that particular field um, and it's a very niche and um, focus area. So I think um, the evidence for using AI is not that AI works, how we are choosing to use it and I think for machine learning we need big data sets if we haven't got them let's not pretend uh, you know let's use the data that we have got so that we are building the types of environments that are really helpful I think another great example of how AI is starting just starting to be used is um, in content development as well and I think that TUI the um, who won an award with the um, with I think with learning technologies they have got some great use of AI in actually drawing together different disparate pieces of content to create content, online content, which has improved their sales turnover figures quite considerably, I think about 30%. Now that's, again, a different use where the machine is picking up relevant good pieces of content and stitching it together using smart algorithms based on evidence of the way that individuals learn space learning all of those kinds of things and I think that is another example in AI creating content but it needs that human intervention and I think that's one of the things we really want to pick up on the exchange this year with speaks is not just about how technology can be used to adapt, create this adaptive, personalized environment, but also what's our role in that? And I think this is gonna be really, really important. We don't have to be AI specialists to bring that common sense that we were talking about earlier in the conversation. I've always said that learning professionals, learning development professionals have four things they do. We, and this is independent of any particular technology. We find, filter, interpret, and share information. I, I've always said that what's happened in, in the past decades that we've seen the change in our industry, that the numbers one, two, and four have become increasingly automatable. But the interpretation piece, as you say, we need the human side of this, is absolutely crucial because putting it in context, adding the value to it, is something which, of course, can to an extent be done by um, machine, but ultimately the differentiation has to come if, if, a, if a machine brings it up to a basic level, that's almost like a commodity. Beyond that, the value is added by a human. So you talked about Speaks Exchange there. Do you want to just let the people listening know more about that? In Berlin, what's, what is it? 
basically an incredible opportunity for people to get together and exchange ideas. And it's, um, I've been involved with it for the past seven or eight years. And we've always wanted to bring an evidence layer to challenge our thinking. So we come together and we discuss the critical key issues in industry. Um, it's very interactive, very social. But at the same time, we're kind of working on practical ways to help each other to address some of the biggest challenges. And I think the, this whole thing about AI and about our involvement and um, the skills that we need in a profession to be our best in the world of, um, of automation. Um, it's going to be a really important thing for us this year. So um, it's linked to the Online Educa um, Berlin event held in Berlin. So um, yes, it's it's open to everyone. We're hoping we can get um, a lot of di discussion going on around this before and during the actual event itself. It takes place this year unusually in the last week of November, unlike uh, previous years has been the first week of December. So last week of November uh, in Berlin, and I believe Speaks takes place usually on the Wednesday. Is that right, Mark? It is. It's the Wednesday of that week. Wednesday, Wednesday 27th of November. Yeah. We'll put information about that in the show notes. Um, Laura, we've talked a lot about evidence. We've talked about improving L&D. When people talk about evidence-based learning, there is a risk, of course, that it is that they are chasing something they've heard about, excited by it, and get the wrong end of the stick. So we've talked about what it is. Do you have any quick caveats, any thoughts on what it isn't? I think what it isn't is you reading a study that actually confirms everything you've ever believed. <laughs> and they, well, it must be true. You know, that, that is not evidence-based uh, uh, evidence decisions. And it's not um, you know, making a decision based on a study, for example, of how workers learn in other organizations and assuming that those workers are your workers. One of the big big issues I, I, I think we have right now is that we are boxing people um, into the way that they learn. We, we debunked the concept of learning styles and we're replacing our learning and development boxes with age boxes and millennial and Gen Z and baby boomer and how each of these different types of individual all learn what they need to learn differently. So I think um, when we're looking at evidence-based learning, we have to bring in multiple sources of evidence, not just evidence from outside, some of the things we've been talking about already, but also evidence from internally within our own organization. Um, over the years, we've, I've certainly seen that a lot of learning and development professionals believe that their own organization is can't learn, bad learning culture, managers don't understand what's going on, and yet we don't actively put our own biases to one side and go out and investigate what the current culture is. Um, so that's an example of evidence that we should be bringing to the table. Um, and it means challenging our own thinking, not just with our external views, but also external views from our own stakeholders within our own organization. And I think all of those start to build up to give us a just slightly clearer picture. So crucial to this idea of evidence-based learning is, if you like, a scientific approach, which is that you have a hypothesis and you attempt to prove or disprove it. And in fact, if you are wedded to it in some way, perhaps emotionally you think this should be the way things happen, it's probably a good idea to actively try to disprove yourself so that you can make your case even stronger. Fair enough? 
Absolutely, absolutely. And, uh, you know, one of, one of my colleagues who I absolutely love working with, the Chief Insight Officer, Jane Daly at, at Towards Maturity, she's a strong advocate of the pre-mortem. You know, let's gather in the evidence before a project starts to say, okay, if this went wrong, what would have caused it and how do we use that? Now, that is data. Data. And, and, it's really important to use stories as data as well as different studies that are around in order to turn data into some real insight. We do need to do what you've just described, which is create a scenario, a hypothesis in which to test that environment. That's the process by which data gets turned into evidence and evidence can then start to drive our insight and then improve our value. I'm not sure that learning development as a field has that approach deeply ingrained in its psyche. Put simply, I'm not sure we do this very well, but do you have some examples of people who are doing this well or who are doing great work in L&D? You've seen, you've had some great case studies with Towards Maturity. Got any great stories to illustrate your point, Laura? Well, some of the ones we've already spoken about, I think, are quite are quite important here, you know. Um, but, you know, I, last time we spoke, we talked about um, Anka Jordashi and uh, Brian Murphy at Citibank. Uh, they've both spoken at the exchange, actually, before now. Um, and where they are starting to question traditional views on learning and development, question the traditional view of it has to be a program, it has to be a course, questioning the traditional view that actually our culture of a 200-year-old bank is one that is set in a particular way and instead has started to introduce a 30-day challenge, a, num a series of micro-interventions, micro-activities pushed out one a day to the entire organisation help them think differently. Now they were using scientific evidence in terms of space repetition and creating effort and creating ownership um, around learning and development but they were also getting people to reflect and to consider what it is that they are doing differently and to build new skills in learning how to learn and that habit creation process this kind of campaign or nudges these are all words that we're starting to see more and it's and it's really working and it's not just in Citibank um, again um, Molly Blackwell and I did a case study when, when I was with Wars Maturity looking at West Midlands Police again a different type of environment a different type of audience using those little micro challenges one a day to build up new skills and digital confidence in a police force that had mm. a really significant bottom line effect on the way that crime was reported in a particular area. So these little micro-challenges based on evidence, gathering evidence in their own environment, very helpful as, as people are responding to the challenge. That evidence itself is then used to tailor the challenge as you go through the months. So this is really powerful shift in behaviour using some of these techniques. Yeah, that's very different to the traditional, as you were saying, we're in learning development, here's some content, it's our job to put that in front of you in the most palatable way. It's really about, as you're saying, uh, changing behaviour and building new habits. And with the city example, after the 30-day challenge is finished, people continue to share on the, if you like, the social internet, we'll call it, where they are learning from each other. 
it's a very different approach to how we've seen our role in the past, isn't it? And it wasn't just a one-off initiative, a 30-day once. It was then repeated the next year and in the third year as well. So again, building and changing these habits, they need to be reinforced. Culture change is a long-term issue, yeah. but it doesn't mean to say that it's something that happens around us. They give a really good example of being proactive in influencing culture over a long period of time that's something we've learned uh, that's them learning from their experience um as a field as a whole learning development what have we learned from the past what have we failed to learn from the past where are we repeating the same dismal habits and mistakes ourselves that we really should change by now i don't want to um go on so i don't want to use the word dismal um <laughs> but um, Don, you and I have regularly discussed uh, um, the progress in the industry, and I think it frustrates us because we know that the learning and development profession are full of passionate people yeah. who want to make a difference and who often feel incredibly isolated mm. within their own organization. They have an incredible vision of what it could be, but they're under pressure from their own organization to deliver today um, as well as plan for the future. And I think this is why we may have not have seen so much progress. I think there is um, a lot of pressure uh, on, on, our, on our profession to deliver more and more courses for less and less money. Mm -hmm. So, of course, we're looking around for ways to be able to do that faster, quicker. Um, and yet, what we haven't learned is the fact that it's just that time of taking a moment of reflection before we jump into the next big thing. If we are jumping into a pilot, what are we trying to do? How are we trying to scale? And I think our progress has been incredible in islands and pockets of success. We've seen some amazing examples, but what we're not seeing, which we both expect to see, was these islands joining up. And I think that's the biggest challenge. So what we've not learned is the basic fundamental timeless effective practice that goes on with or without the new technologies um, and that's what we bring to our profession and to our organizations and that's what we're neglecting it's unquestionably the case isn't it that um people in and feel extremely put upon under pressure to as you say create content to particular timetables there's no, no question about it um we are talking about evidence-based learning as a an approach that will help people shift towards being more effective in their work so do you have any resources that you'd suggest to anybody who want to who wants to make that move towards evidence-based learning I, I think so. I think I think one of the resources that people need to look at is what data is available to them internally. And I'm just being really, really practical here. It's not that you have to dig it up, but just ask the question, what do we already know? And is it readily accessible? Um, and I think that's a really powerful place that we often don't start. Um, um, in that in that space of what's available to us um, and surrounding us right now. I think some of the other resources are, there are some incredible people out, out here um, who have already started looking at the research. Patty Shank has, is doing some great work on looking at the research, that meta patterns of the research, what's going on. Um, Will Tal Talheimer, <laughs> I think it's, please tell me, have I pronounced that correctly this time? I spent years pronouncing Will's <laughs> name wrong before he told me, no, Donald, it's actually pronounced, it's the German way, Talheimer. So, yes, you, you yeah. pronounce it. 
Yes, cause, I mean, his work is so incredible, worklearn.com, um, and he's really been looking at this and really challenges our thinking. And, you know, I think he's on the debunker, which um, is a great um, uh, group that he's brought together. Was, okay, are we willing to challenge our own assumptions? How brave is that? And he's brought that together. I think that's a fantastic resource that we should be looking at. And in terms of really looking at the science of learning, we can't look at every paper that comes out. Out. But uh, the Make It Stick uh, book uh, by Brown, Rodega, and McDaniel, I found that really helpful. They've kind of distilled some of the key things that we just don't do in learning and development, the common sense things that we can do when we apply that to the new technologies that are coming. Um, so they're just a few things that I personally have found helpful on top of, obviously, um, having the incredible privilege to work towards maturity data for 15 years. Uh, I think what I'm, I'm enjoying now is being able to say, okay, that data is incredible to help people open up new conversations and challenge thinking. But stepping back a bit also allows us to see where does that fit in with the biggest pattern of, of evidence out there. And there's a lot of great stuff. So don't get overwhelmed. Just take what you need and be willing to challenge your assumptions before you jump feet first into something new. Thank you, Laura. And I think that business about being prepared to challenge one's assumptions is absolutely crucial. There's a whole bunch of really useful resources. We'll make sure those go into the show notes as well. Um, so finally, the questions which you have to ask all interviewees, that's a special bonus question just for Laura Overton, which we'll ask at the end. But for you, uh, two questions. Firstly, what do you wish you'd known when you'd started in L&D? Second one, what are you curious about right now? And you can't say evidence-based learning because we've already covered that. So what do you wish you'd known when you started? How to use that evidence. I know, uh -huh. I know we've already covered it and I know that's a bit mean, but you know, when I was younger, I was, I was very lucky to actually join the learning and development profession as my first choice of my career from a psychology degree. Um, so I've always been passionate, always been curious, always been exploring it and always wanting to run before I could walk. Mm -hmm. And I think if I had harnessed that evidence in a more reflective way in the earlier part of my career, I would have been able to perhaps overcome some of the challenges that, to be honest, a young woman in the technology-enabled learning industry faced. It was a very male-dominated industry, and there were yep. lots of new things uh, that were going on, and and I didn't believe that my peers necessarily. Um, had got all the facts, had got all the experience and all the worldly wisdom. And I think I would have taken more confidence if I was my younger self now, taken more confidence to challenge that, to reflect, to gather my evidence and to stand up and be counted slightly earlier than I was in my career. I like the idea of evidence being a career enhancer and accelerator. I've never thought about that before. So thank yeah. you for that. Courage. Um, it gives you courage, I think, yes. that you don't normally have. I like that. All right. So that's great at your beginning of your career right now. Now, the final question, what are you curious about right now? You can't have evidence because we've had that before in two of your answers. So what are you curious about right now in learning? I think for me, um, I've really enjoyed having a couple of months just 
of being able to reset, if that makes sense. And the thing that I'm most curious about is being able to look at other disciplines and look at the overlap. I think a lot of creativity and innovation comes out when you take one discipline. Um, historically, I've looked at marketing and how does that overlap with learning and development? And then that's really created an amazing amount of new insights for learning and development. And that's where I'm looking at the moment, overlap. Um, so I'm looking at the overlap between organizational development and, um, and, and learning and development. And I think there are some really exciting things that are coming out there, lessons that can be learned both ways that bring a new edge into culture and change and learning culture. So that's the kind of thing that I'm really interested in at the moment. Hmm. I, I totally buy it. I think there are, there, are, no, there are really exciting things happening in lots of fields. I look at marketing, yeah. I look at publishing, I look at music, I look at medicine. There's so many things yeah. we can learn from other fields yeah. that yeah. we could apply if we, yeah. well, not so much if we're prepared to. I think the willingness is there, but I think also it's the time and the resources to make things happen is sometimes yeah. a bit difficult. And sometimes those overlaps in a new space can actually give you a breakthrough moment. And I think that's what I'm looking for at the moment. And I'm just kind of exploring what those potential breakthrough moments are by looking at some of these other different sectors. I like it. I like it very much. Um, okay, so final bonus question for Laura Overton. Everyone's been asking. We've done it. You're talking to Laura. What is she doing? What's next for Laura? And I said, look, you have to wait for the podcast and then all will be revealed. Laura, your chance to reveal. What are you doing? What comes next? Uh, well, what I have been doing is, is fending off a whole heap of questions. People saying, well, what are you doing? Are you on the beat? <laughs> Have you retired? Are you on the beach? And in, to a certain extent, I am sitting on the beach at the moment because it metaphorically and sometimes physically, um, in terms of taking that time to reflect, I think that's really important. And I've been very lucky to be able to stop and reset. Um, but I think for me, um, I'm still very excited about this industry. Um, and also, I've always said, everyone's always asked me in the past, are you going to write? Are you going to do more writing? So I think there's the book in me. Well, hang on, hang on. You can't, you can't just say, that. Is, is there a book coming or not? Well, let's, let's be there is, clear. There is a book in me at the moment, but you, but you know what that's like, Don. You know, it's like I'm not going to make some major commitments. Um, but I'm really excited um, about using that as a framework to kind of, kind of think through not only the past, but also the future as well. So I'm, I'm very excited about that. Well, we know from all the inquiries and interest we've been having, you're guaranteed an avid readership. All right, look, it's, uh, we have to wrap up. It's been a pleasure, as always, Laura, catching up and speaking on the Speaks Exchange podcast. Thank you so much for coming along. No, thanks for having me.